Hello and welcome back to Secrets Behind the Music Business. I'm your host, Barry Victor, and today we have with us a special guest who is an entertainment attorney with over 20 years experience as well as an author, Mr. Steve Gordon. Steve, how you doing today? Hi, Barry. Thanks for inviting me to do this podcast. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. I'm a fan of your work. So uh, this is kind of surreal. I I didn't think I'd ever be able to get in (laughs) touch with you. So I'm happy to have you here today. Thanks, Barry. So, Steve, can we start off by you telling us about your background within the entertainment field, how you got into it, and and what made you say, man, I want to be a part of this industry instead of just doing so many other types of law. What made you want to be a part of the entertainment industry? Well, my father was an artist, and um, that was an influence. And in law school, I took copyright law and really loved it. And then I had this summer job where we had this really interesting litigation going. We represented a kind of a slutty magazine called Celebrity Skin. And uh, the editor would take uh, pictures, um, uh, well, would take pictures or photos wherever she could find them of movie stars um, as scantily clad as possible and Mm -hmm. publish them. Uh, this is before the internet, by the way, where you can get anything now everywhere. But um, that was her scheme, and some of the celebrities would sue her because they um, argued that these pictures violated their privacy, uh, and they had been published once somewhere else, uh, and uh, they weren't supposed to be published again. For instance, Anne Margaret posed uh, topless in a a movie um, for one second, and mm-hmm. she had everybody ordered off the set except her mother, the director. Mm-hmm. And so this this nude scene appeared for one second in a movie. Well, that was the second that the editor decided to publish. But the litigation was about Anne Margaret's right of privacy versus the First Amendment rights of this slutty magazine. Mm-hmm. And we represented the magazine, and we won. Oh, wow. Because uh, the public's interest in knowing about Aunt Margaret was uh, superseded her right of privacy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we had some really interesting issues, and um, I thought this was pretty glamorous stuff. And uh, that's um, launched staying in the entertainment business. Right. We definitely had the most interesting exhibits in federal court that summer. Sounds good. So, I mean... That going from uh, like the magazine side, how did you transition into working with musicians? Well, I uh, started my career uh, in litigation, uh, but I wanted to do transactional work. I wanted to be, you know, an entertainment lawyer, uh, which means doing deals. And um, in New York, uh, the biggest part of the entertainment business for a transactional lawyer is the music business. Okay. Um, now in LA, it's much easier to get a job in movies and production and television as a lawyer than in New York. But in terms of music law, it's kind of equally divided between New York and LA, and I wanted to stay in New York, so I found myself in a music law firm, and I've been doing music ever since. Although, when I got to Sony, music in the 90s after a couple of law firm jobs I transitioned into Sony Music I specialized in television and video so now I do work with artists and record companies and all that 
but I also work with television and movie producers. Um, and a lot of my work consists of music licensing. For instance, I worked with the African American History Museum that just opened up in Washington uh, last September on 100 short films. And uh, each film was about a different subject, whether spiritual music or hip-hop. Mm -hmm. And we had to license music for each short film, which means I go and get permission uh, from the songwriter and the record company uh, to use their music in our movies. And I have to negotiate rates and terms for the use of this music. So I do a, a great deal of that kind of work. And um, as you mentioned, I'm also an author. Uh, the two books that I've put out through my publishing company, that is Hal Leonard, it's The Future of the Music Business. The last edition of that came out in 2015. That book provides a legal and business roadmap to artists and entrepreneurs uh, for success in today's music business by detailing the rules that apply to digital music distribution, you know, iTunes, Spotify, and all that good stuff. And then we just published last March the 11 contracts that every artist, songwriter, and producer should know. And the book focuses on the most common important contracts uh, that have come up in my practice since leaving Sony in 2002. I've worked with emerging artists and managers and labels, and the book deals with the contracts that come up most often in my practice, for instance, management agreements, artist agreements, production company agreements, safe deals. Those are the deals, plus a few more, that come up more often than any others in my private practice. Now, when I was at Sony, I wouldn't know any of this stuff because I dealt with the likes of Mariah Carey and Michael Jackson, mm -hmm. and I only dealt on big-time contracts. But in private practice, it's totally different. With emerging artists, uh, they get an offer from a manager. They don't know if it's good or bad. They get an offer from a production company. They don't know if it's good or bad. And so this book actually gives the contracts by presenting the pro-artist contract and then the pro-company contract and discussing the differences and the major issues involved in each negotiation. Yeah, it's, it's heavy reading. Like, if you don't understand the business, it opens up your eyes to a lot. And, I mean, it, I can see the amount of work that you must have put in throughout your career because it's very detailed. Um, it makes you have to learn, you know, like when I'm reading that book, the 11 contracts, I'm like trying to figure out, okay, what does this mean? And what does this clause mean? You know, it's, it's so much information. Um, how do you get people to understand what these things actually mean in layman's terms when you're breaking it down to them? Well, you know, I wrote the book because if you look up music producer in Google, you're not going to find anything. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you might find one article that I previously published. And if you look for music management contracts, and I've done this, you won't find anything. Mm -hmm. uh, so I felt like there was a real need. And it's not the kind of book that, you know, you go home and you read summer, summer reading, for instance. It's not kind of a book you'd bring to the beach. But <laughs> if you say are a producer, uh, I'll give you a real example, uh, who uh, has a, a wife who knows a friend who works at an ad agency, and that friend says, we're looking for some music. I know your husband writes music. Would he be interested? And then that became my client, um, the guy who's married to the woman who knew the friend. And he said, look, I have this offer. I submitted a demo. They liked it. And now there's this offer on the table. It says work for hire. Should I sign it? 
So, no, you shouldn't, because that means you're giving up all your rights. Mm -hmm. So I negotiated the deal for him with the ad agency, and I knew what to ask for, and that's very important. And the bottom line is instead of transferring all rights, he just gave them a one-year, non-exclusive right to use his music in a commercial. It was a beer commercial. And we got a fair, fairly good fee for it. $20,000. You know, he was unknown. If he was a very well-known composer, it would have been more. And we got um, them to agree to put his name when the commercial played on YouTube under more information. So if people liked the music in the commercial, they could find out who wrote the music. And all of this is because I knew what to ask for. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the sync license chapter in the book, there is this actual contract that I negotiated for him uh, with um, annotations in the contract it's explaining each relevant term and explaining why it's good for the composer-producer. And I also put in another sync license, which crossed my desk, which was totally pro-company mm -hmm. and very bad for the producer-composer, just to show the contrast between the two agreements, what's good, what's bad. Now, this isn't meant to replace a lawyer, but it will educate people as to the issues so that if they can engage a lawyer, uh, which means paying some money, mm -hmm. it'll save a lot of time mm -hmm. and the legal fees will be less because the lawyer won't have to explain everything to the client. And also, after the client really studies this chapter, he or she may know more than the lawyer because <laughs> not all lawyers are real entertainment lawyers, even if they say they do entertainment law. And then this is a good way, a litmus test of testing your lawyer to see whether this is the right person to hire. Right, because it takes some time to acquire all of this knowledge, right? You can't just hop in straight out of law school. Well, that's right. And when I was at Sony, I wouldn't know any of this stuff because I was just focusing on these big-time contracts. So it's really a very small um, community of uh, music lawyers who really know their stuff. Um, so if a person is shopping around for a lawyer and they've read uh, the chapter relevant to the deal that they've uh, been offered, uh, they'll be able to know right away whether that lawyer knows this stuff or not. Mm -hmm. So I want to know, because you mentioned about the advertising agency, are advertising agencies a lot easier to work with in terms of negotiating deals than it is with the record label? Well, they're two separate worlds. Mm -hmm. um, so I know a guy um, who studied uh, music uh, in school and is a very talented composer, producer. And he's got a staff of two or three other guys who are talented composer, producers. And they have ongoing relationships with the ad agencies. Uh, and the ad agencies will call them up to do something called sound design. So if it's a McDonald's commercial, they'll tell them what they want to hear, what the sound, they want something upbeat and giddy, or they want something serious for, say, a, you know, upscale car commercial. And because they have this relationship over the years of working together, uh, they can do things very quickly. Uh, and the ad agency knows that they're dealing with people who know what they're doing and they're skilled at doing this kind of work. And so that world 
is completely distinct from record companies and artists. Um, the record company in my day, in the good old days, the 90s, <laughs> they would sign 10 artists a week. Wow. And they'd throw them up against the wall and see what stuck. <laughs> and so when I was at Sony in the 90s, we had more drop notices uh, like coming around every week because they signed so many artists, and a lot of them didn't work out. They would give them a few weeks to take off at radio, and if it wasn't going to be an instant hit, you were out. Now, and the good thing about it, though, was that they paid up front like a quarter of a million dollars per artist. Now, a lot of that went to producing an album, but the artist at least got a payday because not all of it went into the album. They put some in their pocket. So even if they were dropped, they would walk away with money, and the record company never asked for the money back. Nowadays, things are completely different. You know, an artist has to have a proven track record of success on their own for the record company to be even interested. You know, when um, Nirvana uh, became successful, all the record companies descended on places like Seattle and Portland and signed every group that looked grungy, right? <laughs> and all of, them, all of them got a lot of money up front, and some of them succeeded, like Pearl Jam, but most, of course, did not. Nowadays, that doesn't happen. An artist has got to be out there. He's got to have uh, followers. He's got to have some success in live gigs. Or he's got to have some real sales on his own uh, for the record company to be even interested and to make that investment. Because guess what? They just don't have the money they used to. The record industry income in 1999 reached its peak at $14.5 billion in the United States. It's now at around $7 billion. And accounting for inflation, that's a 75% decline in income. So, of course, that means signing few artists. And occasionally, they do make a big signing, and I can give you examples of that. But, like I said, it's a completely different world than sync licensing. Okay. And we know that some of the reasons of that decline is because of technology, such things as Napster and iTunes. So that leads me to the question, because now we're trying to figure out how do we still get artists to make money within this industry within this ecosystem so i want to know in terms of um the courts and within the the legal side can you tell us some of the recent laws or legislation that have changed or came into place that affects how musicians earn money can you see like a statutory rate changing sometime soon to maybe 10 cents or are they making spotify give out more money within the next six months do you see anything that's about to change soon well, there's something called the Fair Play Act of 2017, introduced by a congressman in New York, Nadler. And this bill, if it was passed, uh, would amend federal law to extend to sound recordings the right to earn royalties from the public performance of records. So what that means is radio does not pay for performance of records. So when you hear a record on terrestrial radio, which is still a huge uh, you know, component of the business, you hear the record, but 
the musicians and the artists don't get paid, and the record companies don't get paid. Uh, the owners of the song get paid from ASCAP and BMI. Now, the reason for this discrepancy, and by the way, the United States is one of the very few countries in the world where radio does not pay for records. The reason for it is political. Record companies wanted to get radio to play their records in the old days, and they had something called payola. So they used to pay the radio stations to play their records. But when the record business started to go south in the late 90s, the record companies became desperate and wanted Congress to change the law so record, uh, radio stations would pay them finally. Well, the congressmen who would amend this law live and work in various places. And the only places where the record companies have real power are cloud, New York, L.A., Nashville. But the congressmen are in every state, and every congressman needs their local radio station more than they need the record companies. So for the last 15 years, the record labels have been trying to change this law. It's come up multiple times. Uh, Nadler, his bill is the last reiteration of this uh, proposed change. And it's possible that they'll work out a compromise so that record companies and artists finally get paid uh, from radio, but we shall have to see on that one. Possible, but not totally likely. Um, have they thought of the system or organization that will be paying this out? If it does pass, would this go through ASCAP and BMI as well, or would that come through Sound Exchange or what um, platform? Yeah, you know, it, I'm sure it would be uh, yeah, the Sound Exchange or, or an agency very like it, but the Sound Exchange um, organization collects money on behalf of artists and record companies from public performance, but not on radio because of what we just said. But they do collect from digital platforms like Pandora and Spotify because, because the law says that if you perform a record digitally, then you have to pay the artist and the record companies. So public performance rights for records exist, but only for digital formats. And Sound Exchange is the organization that collects the money from those formats, like Pandora and Sirius. Got it. Um, I want to go back a little bit because I'm, when you talked about producers earlier, I want to talk about within your experience the difference between what a producer is today and what that was 20 years ago, 50 years ago, because sometimes we have people who are just beat makers and sometimes we have people that are producers who don't play any of the instruments or they don't program any of the tracks, but they're still producers. So I want to know how that works out in terms of publishing and points when the, when the actual record goes out, does the person that created the track, are they just getting part of the publishing for being the composer of the music or do they still get that like three to 4% that a producer would get as well when an actual producer comes in to put the track together? Yeah, traditionally producers get points three to five percent, uh, and that's based on how the artist gets paid. So if the artist um, gets a lower foreign rate, 
then the producer's royalty will be diminished uh, to that extent. And traditionally, the producers will get an advance, um, and it all depends on the status of the producer. It could be a few thousand, and it could be over 100,000 per track, depending on the identity of the producer. But the big change that's happened since the advent of hip-hop is this. In the days of Sinatra and Elvis and the Beatles, the producer would help shape the sound and work with the artist, and that would be it. The song would be 100% owned by Lennon McCartney, right? Because the producer for the Beatles didn't really create music. They helped shape it. With the advent of hip-hop and beats, the producer is now a songwriter in addition to being a producer. So a producer agreement these days, a pro-producer agreement, would acknowledge that the producer wrote the beat and that the producer owns a share in the song. And the reason this is very important, going back to radio, is that only the songwriters get paid for public performance. So if you've got a hit song, uh, you remember Bascap BMI, you can collect a lot of money and also money from all over the world. But that's only for the song. So if the producer doesn't get credit as a songwriter, then he doesn't get that money. Uh, and that money can be from public performance or it can be from sync. So if, say, Budweiser uh, wants to use a song, they don't have to use the original recording. They can re-record the song, which happens a lot. And in that case, the producer wouldn't get any money unless he was acknowledged as a songwriter. So that's the, uh, the huge difference between producers then and producers now. So if there's like a, a third-party producer that, say, is bringing in many different people who are creating beats and he puts their beats together, is he considered just one of many producers or are the ones who are making the beats, are they just getting paid a flat rate for having the track ready and then someone else is taking the actual producer credit and they're just getting songwriting credit for writing the beat? You know, it happens all kinds of ways. And sometimes a song, especially in hip-hop, will go through very uh, various uh, versions and there'll be a lot of cooks in that kitchen. And then it's up to the individual lawyers to work something out in terms of who owns what percentage of what. So, for instance, going back a while, in the autobiography of Lauren Hill, everybody was in the studio for a period of time making that album, and everybody was kind of a little bit high, <laughs> and nobody was thinking, oh, okay, who's... Who's getting credit for this? Who's getting credit for that? Oh, who's getting percentage of this, percentage of that? And so there was a litigation that lasted like years where people would make claims that they wrote part of the song or all the song. And um, Lauren Hill finally broke down on the stand and she said, I don't know who wrote what. I, God wrote it. So it could be a mess. But you can avoid that mess by just writing down on a piece of paper signed by all the parties after the song is done as to who owns what. And if that's done, 
then you have clarity and you don't have to get into a huge lawsuit where only the lawyers profit. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Just handle the business up front as soon as you can. That's right, and it doesn't it doesn't take much and uh, effort. And I have in the um, book uh, a sample agreement of how that is done, and uh, also it's called a split sheet, uh, Barry. And it, so it can be a one-page thing where you just got the name of the songs and the names of the uh, the writers and percentage of ownership. And that could save a lot of grief. But um, And you don't need a lawyer for it. And um, on the subject of not needing a lawyer, uh, one of the chapters in the book that's most helpful is essential business actions a band or a solo artist can take with little or no cost without the services of a lawyer. Because, you know, as you know, people starting in their business may not have a lot of money to spend on lawyers. And this chapter explains what you can do and what you should do, even if you can't afford a lawyer. It explains how to copyright, register for copyright your songs and your records. And it um, gives you the sample split sheet. And it tells you about the role of ASCAP and BMI. And it also explains how to protect your band name uh, from third parties and if you're a band from each other. So you should have a simple agreement, which I put in the book, that says with respect to the trademark or the name of the band, you can use it if you leave the band, but you have to say formally of. And we continue the uh, remaining members to own the trademark. And if you've got that simple agreement, that, that does avoid a lot of grief and possible litigation if the band becomes successful. Because, you know, unless you become financially successful, I'm not saying none of this really matters, but a lot of it just doesn't. <laughs> because when money is involved, then the proverbial crap hits the fan and you have to sort out who owns what and how much each party should get. So before you get to that level of success, it's helpful to have these essential business actions done, which I said um, you did not need a lawyer for. So would you recommend that people spend all the money to get, let's say, their full album copyrighted that has many different producers and songwriters on there? Because when they're all different, then you have to file each one separately from my understanding, unless all the authors are the same. Do you recommend that for somebody who doesn't necessarily have the budget? Well, you're right. Uh, the authors have to be the same. But if, if you're a singer-songwriter and you've written all the al uh, songs on the album, you can um, copyright, register for copyright all the songs and all the masters in one fell swoop for 55 bucks. Uh, so... And that's something that you can do on your own. It's not hard, and I give instructions on how to do it in the book. Now, we've got multiple parties, and each song is different. Well, that's where you have to make a decision about uh, whether you are going to spend the money on a lawyer because you'll need one, or whether the track will make no money, in which case it will be a waste to spend the money. 
So if you're up and coming, if you had some great success, I had a rapper uh, named T. Wayne who had a big hit on his own. And it was a little bit of a, a mess because nobody, you know, did the right paperwork. So we had to do everything retroactively. And that was, you know, it was costly. But uh, he didn't know it was going to be a big hit. <laughs> so if you're in a situation where you've had hits in the past on your own, then it is worth it. Um, if you're in a situation where you've never had a hit and you probably won't have one with this, then it may not be worth it. So it's a gamble. I mean, are you going to spend the money on a lawyer to protect yourself, or aren't you? And if you're not going to make any money from a track, it probably isn't worth it because nothing is lost. Uh, if somebody uh, claims something and there's no money, then nothing is lost. So it, it, it's all about cost-benefit in each case. Now, one resource that an up-and-coming artist or band or group uh, should think about if they don't have any money for a lawyer and they think they're going to have a hit with a track is something called Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts. There's a VLA in every big city. It started as a clinical program at Columbia University Law School, but now it's spread out through the country. And they'll intake and interview you, make you pay like 50 bucks. It, I guess it varies from office to office, very little, and get you a real music lawyer to work with you for free. So VLA is a, a resource people should keep in mind. What are the requirements in order for you to, I say, pass with everybody needs you, you to need pass to in order poor. to use the, the lawyer? You need to be poor. <laughs> <laughs> so what are, are they looking at, like, uh, income statements or tax returns, or is it just you saying, like, I don't have any money through, like, a, a checkbox series or I mean, it, I think it varies. Um, you know, New York VLA, San Francisco VLA, and they have different rules, so I can't really talk to the details. But okay. if you call them, and they're easy enough to find, Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, they'll let you know what the rules are. Okay. All right. So I want to transition over to a little bit about, like, record deals for artists. And I want to know, when you're seeking a deal with a record label as a recording artist, what are some of the most important terms to consider before you sign that contract? Well, the first term to consider is what kind of contract you're signing with what kind of company. I have a chapter in the book called The Contract from Hell that no artist should sign. And the contract from hell is a contract that looks like a regular record label contract, but the company is not a real record company. It's a production company where they, you know, there's a producer, there may be one guy with money, one guy who produces, and they can produce a demo for you, and they can shop it. But what they do is include all the terms in a big record company deal. And a big record company deal has terms that are pretty onerous, but could be justified to some extent if the big record company is giving you a big advance. But what happens a lot of the time, too often, is these production companies, they masquerade as record labels. At least the contract that they offer is as onerous as a big record label, but doesn't give you any of the, the benefits, like the big advance, so you can quit your day gig. And so let me talk about the normal record company contract. And 
it's pretty much still the same as years ago in terms of options. Although they they don't sign as many artists as they used to, as we said, the record contracts look like they have for a long time. So what I mean by options is you sign and the record company has an option for additional albums or options for additional albums, which means that the term of the agreement could last basically for the whole career of an artist because you could get options for up to, say, 7 to 12 albums. And so this makes you kind of tied to the record company. Although the record company can drop you if you don't sell, one of the nice things about the record business, if there aren't that many, is that they don't ask for the money back if they drop you. So the term of the agreement can be very long, and that should not be in a production company contract. In a production company contract, you want to give the production company a limited time, like 18 months, to shop a record. Because the production company, first of all, is probably not going to pay you in advance. The production company doesn't have a marketing staff. The production company can't necessarily get you on radio. The production company is not necessarily going to spend money on a good video. The production company doesn't have the relationships to put you on the Tonight Show. Uh, the production company doesn't have the, the pull uh, and the relationships to get you on the BET or Grammy Awards. All right, Only a big record company can get you to that level of success. And there are good independent record companies, but um, to be, you know, Beyonce, um, that's where you need the big record company. Now, you got the options. Uh, you have advances for each option, uh, which would be negotiated. And then you have the royalty. So the royalty for an artist starting off is usually 12%, 15%, but it can go way up if the artist is successful. For instance, Michael Jackson renegotiated his record royalty like at least a dozen times during his career at Sony. And finally, he, he got it up to 50%, which is, of course, well, that's Michael, but it can go up. Not maybe 50%, but it can go up. The copyrights generally in the record business are still owned by the record company, which means when the artist leaves, he can't take his records with him. The record company has continuing right to sell because they still have to pay the royalty. The other major term in a record contracts in the last, I would say, 20 years is the 360 provision. In the old days, record companies made money from selling records. And they never asked for the artist to share his performance income or touring or merchandise or anything like that. That was all sacred. If the artist signed with the record company, he was signing a record deal. But in the last 20 years, uh, since the kind of like decline of the record companies, starting in 1999 with the advent of Napster, the record companies said, hey, look, we're not selling this like we used to. We're not making the same money we used to, but we're still putting a lot of money into recording and marketing your records. So we need you to compromise here a bit and give us a share of other sources of income besides records. And that means touring, live performance, merchandise, and something called music publishing. So the record companies are asking, and we can talk about what music publishing is, but the record companies are asking for, say, 10 to 20% of all income an artist makes, and they never used to do that with 
you know, the Beatles or Elvis, but now they are, and it's a standard part of every big label deal. Now, what's really, truly unfair is if a production company puts in a 360 provision, because, again, they're not doing all the things a record company does to help an artist succeed. Like tour support, in the beginning of your career, you may play, you know, smaller clubs where you actually need money to, you know, uh, set up your lighting and your crew, um, and you might actually be losing money on the road. The record company, unlike a production company, will actually put up money so you can tour and build up a name. But uh, production companies don't do any of that, so it's very unfair for the production company to ask for a share of other income. And yet, it's in almost every production company contract I've seen. So, you know, you don't want to sign that. And there's a chapter on the book on what not to sign, and the chapter shows how the provisions can be changed to make it fairer. Now, sometimes you just can't make it fairer, and then you've got a big decision to make. Whether you want to go with this big-time producer who's got a big name or walk away because the contract is so unfair. And it's, a, it's an excruciating decision to make. And sometimes even if you have a lawyer, it's a difficult decision to make because if the lawyer can't get the production company to change the deal, then you've got a, a real dilemma. Now, I had this come up recently. Big-time producer offering a shitty contract. And fortunately... Uh, Bruno Mars came out of the woodwork and said, you know what, I think you got a lot of talent. And he actually did negotiate a fair deal between the artist and his production company. Mm -hmm. So some, sometimes you got to get lucky. Yeah. So what is, in your opinion, a fair contract look like between uh, an artist and the label? Or do those even exist? Or do you think that most likely someone's going to lose? Well, I had this girl who had this amazing success on her own, you know, the traditional cliche of music in her bedroom. Um, but it went viral. She started out doing covers, as a lot of these kids do, uh, and she got a following on Instagram. And then she, or no, Vine, started to uh, put out six-second segment, six segments of an original song, and there was a big clamoring to hear the full song. So she put it up. Um, on iTunes and she had a couple hundred thousand followers and people really wanted to support her and they bought the iTunes download and she was second to Ed Sheeran in the singer-songwriter category um, on iTunes and that's when the record companies took notice but I got her management the management was you know, top-notch they have relationships with the record company presidents. They started a bidding war. They met with Sony one day, and the head of Warner Records came down that night from L.A. just to see if he could snatch her away from Sony. That's how hot she was. So we got a million-dollar advance and um, a very low 360 at 10%. And um, she's touring now, and... Um, She's a household name already in her home country, Canada, and I expect that she's going to be pretty famous in the U.S. Again, this kind of deal is very rare. Uh, but I find that the record companies are not out to fleece you. They're just more cautious than they used to be. For instance, I had a, a good, talented kid who had a success with the 
Stanky Lake a few years ago. And one of the major record companies cautiously entered into a single deal with an option for another single and put a little money up front. So that's the kind of deal that you're getting from big record companies more often than not. Again, the the excruciating part of the business is the production company, where these guys, sometimes hustlers, sometimes well-intentioned because they figure they're going to help the artist so much, whether they do or they don't, they offer these big-time record company deals uh, that are quite onerous and unfair. Do you see these type of production deals started by just uh, local artists or producers that are trying to give out these deals where they're locking the artists in, or is it usually like an artist or a producer that's already has some type of track record? Well, you know, both. I mean, um, sometimes it's just somebody from some celebrity's entourage who decides that he's going to be a record company. Um, and that's pretty dangerous. And sometimes it's a very successful producer who's got his own production company and a lot going for him. Uh, and they're famous. But the danger with that is you can become just another member of the entourage. And he, if he signs you to this owner's agreement, he can kind of forget about you. And then if you do have a hit, you know, even if it's with another producer because he's lost interest in you, then he can swoop in and get his share and make a deal with um, the new record company for his, uh, based on his owner's contract. That happens a lot. Okay. So um, typically after signing a record deal, how long does the label own the masters after that? Is it three to four years or is it forever? I've heard um, about reversion clause where you can get them back after 35 years. How does it typically work? Yeah, well, the contracts with record companies are generally called work for hire, which means the record company becomes the author of the work and the owner of the copyright. And so, like I said, even when the artist leaves the label, whether voluntarily or he's dropped, the record company continues to sell his records. Like, you know, Sony continues to sell the Elvis records. It goes on forever. Now, you said something about the 35-year issue. Yes, after 35 years, uh, an author or a creator can um, claim reversion of the rights even if the contract was perpetual. However, it's very complex with records because there's usually more than one creator. There's a producer. Uh, everybody has to be on board. And also the contracts say work for hire, and the law only applies to assignments. For instance, a songwriter will assign a copyright to a music publisher. It's not work for hire. And under the law, a songwriter can get rights and has often gotten his rights back after that 35-year period. But the record companies claim that doesn't apply to them because their contracts are work for hire. So this is a big controversy, and it's been you know kicked around at conferences the last five years. And because um, that 35-year clause starts from 1978, so the new act, not the old copyright law. So things started to kick back, I think, around 2013, 
But there has been no case on this settling this dispute because everything's been settled off the record. So, you know, the who or whatever band or Bob Dylan will go back to the record company and say, hey, I want my copyrights back. And instead of, you know, a lawsuit challenging the work for hire agreement, they'll settle. And the reason why the record companies settle is they may lose the case because a record contract does not necessarily or isn't necessarily a valid work for hire agreement because of technicalities in the Copyright Act, which we don't have to get into. It's not clear whether the work for hire provision in that record contract is enforceable. So the bottom line is there have been dozens of claims for reversions and everything has been settled, like the artist getting a bigger royalty or maybe getting, you know, a bonus payment or something like that. So the, the law is unsettled. So anything pre-1978, you're just, that contract is just void. You don't get any of those rights back. Well, you don't get the termination right um, for uh, works created before then. Okay. That, that termination right was created under the 1976 Copyright Act, which goes, went into effect January uh, 1978. Okay. And so you talked about songwriters and um, publishers. So I want to know when you're seeking a publishing deal as a songwriter, what are those most important terms to consider as aside from an artist? Yeah. A label? I always start this by saying, you know, let's just define what music publishing is. So music publishing, and then we can get into the forms of agreement, uh, which there are three or four. So music publishing has to do with songs. So songs generate money in a different manner than records. We already talked about songs generating money for public performance on radio, which doesn't exist for records. Uh, songs can also make money from sync, you know, in a movie or commercial, and they can make a ton of money. For instance, I licensed Born to be Wild uh, for, on behalf of an insurance company for national commercial. It was $375,000 just for the song. Anyway, so there's sync, there's performance, and then there's something called mechanicals. Every time a record is sold, the songwriter gets a royalty. And um, the copyright law has set that royalty at 9.1 cents. So you write a song, Beyonce records it, she sells a million records, you make $91,000 just from that one song. Um, that is music publishing. So a music publisher is a company that does one major thing for you, which is collect the money. If you've got a hit song, it can make money all kinds of ways. It could be in a television commercial in the U.S. It could be in a Japanese beer commercial. It could be in a Swedish independent feature. It could be re-recorded in Germany and go top of the charts. And each of those cases generates income. But unless you have a music publisher, you may never collect that money. You may never know about it. Publishers have offices all around the world. They track these things, and they're there to collect the money. They're, the, they're, they're your money collector. They also negotiate the deals for Sync, for instance, on a national commercial. They know what the latest going rate is. They can make a, a valid judgment about you know, the uh, songwriter's prestige and what the company generally pays at that level of prestige or success. So they generate, I mean, they negotiate the best rates. They also try to get your music in new opportunities 
like movies and television and ad agencies. They have relationships with all these different companies, music supervisors, directors, etc. So that's what music publishers do. That's why you share income with them. So the generally the most popular kind of standard agreement is something called co-pub, co-publisher. It used to be a 50-50 split, but as singer-songwriters became, you know, more powerful, like Simon and Garfunkel and James Taylor and the Beatles, the agreements started to get better for the songwriters. And so a co-pub deal is not 50-50. Generally, it's 75 in favor of the writer and 25 for the publisher. Now, that pertains directly to public performance royalties from radio and from uh, and digital platforms. It's always 75% for the writer, 25% for the publisher. With respect to sync, um, it could be a little bit of a different uh, equation. It could be 70-30. But generally what we're talking about is that the songwriter is making 75%. And that is the standard COPOB deal. It lasts for multiple terms. It should have a big advance up front. Um, I think I've seen less con artists in publishing than I have in the recording business. I mean, the role of that production company masquerading as a label, it's not as prevalent um, in the publishing world. You don't find little publishers trying to cheat uh, songwriters like you do with the production company scene. Unfortunately, with the production company contract, that often includes a publishing deal. So <laughs> when you're signing that deal, not only are you giving away your freedom to this company that may not do anything for you, you're also giving them your publishing. And um, they become your publishers, which means you can't sell your publishing to a different company, uh, and you lose that opportunity. So again, you have to be very careful about about that uh, production company contract. Uh, record companies usually don't would reach that level of uh, duplicity. Um, what they might do is direct you to their publishing affiliate and kind of like strong arm you to sign with their, you know, Warner has Warner Chapel, you know, Sony has Sony ATV. They might steer you towards their publishing company. But the big publishing companies all offer the same kind of agreement, options for additional periods, but advances for each option period. And they won't sign you unless you've had a hit or, think, or, think, or they think you will have a hit because they're not going to you know, waste their money on somebody who's not going to make money for them. In terms of when you say waste the money, what does that look like before they actually have a hit? Is like, Do you have to pay money to even shop it to the artist? Or, or are those relationships just like, hey, I want Beyonce to sing this song. Can she listen to it? or look at the lyrics. Well, like, how would that be wasting money up front? With the girl that is about to be the household name, she signed with a big record company for a million and she got a million and a half up front from the publishing company. Mm -hmm. So and that was a co-pub deal. Again, that's a huge advance. But again, they're not going to sign you unless they think you're going to have a hit. They're not going to work do the work for you. They're not going to try to shop it uh, for you uh, unless you've already had a hit. Okay. So you're just talking about advance. Like the advance would be the way to waste money. I thought they were like 
other fees that you were talking about in terms of like shopping it or getting placements for it. Okay. Um, so well, there are repti- there are, there are reptiles where a producer may not uh, enter into a full scale uh, publishing contract with a major publishing company, but there are dozens, maybe hundreds of reps out there who will shop your music for a sync deal. Mm-hmm. And they usually won't pay in advance, and they usually will want to split the money 50-50, and some are more reputable than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, know, you look at their site, you see who, what other artists or songwriters they represent, and then you make your decision. Okay. And so I heard you mention earlier mechanical royalties. When a song is being played on, say, Pandora or Spotify, does that constitute a public performance and a mechanical royalty? Yeah, you're getting into an area where there's a lot of controversy now. Uh, record companies have direct deals with uh, Spotify. And um, Sound Exchange usually represented, used to represent the record companies uh, for Pandora, which is a non-interactive service. But now direct deals are more prevalent. So when Spotify plays a record, because it's digital, they're paying Sony, Warner Universal, they're paying the record companies, and a lot of money too, big advances. And um, they claim over 50% of their gross revenue goes to record companies. Now, when you're an independent artist, well, I should when you're an independent artist, um, you do get paid for your record. Uh, not a lot, you know, um, Digital Music News, the blog I write for, always monitors how much Apple Music pays more than Spotify, etc. But it's the fraction of a penny. YouTube pays the worst. That is with respect to the record. Now, the publishing is completely different. Now, Spotify, YouTube, they all have deals with ASCAP and BMI. Actually, YouTube, their deal is not finalized yet, but they will pay retroactively. And they'll pay a blanket license fee, and that will go to ASCAP and BMI. And ASCAP and BMI, in turn, pay the songwriter. So that performance royalty, that's working out okay. But there is another bit in here, and it's the mechanical. And when a major record company uh, enters into a deal, they will give copyright information about the songwriters. And Harry Fox uses this uh, powerful, and they represent the songwriters and publishers, Harry Fox does, a powerful software engine to monitor every performance of the song on Spotify. Because Spotify is an interactive service, and there's a temporary copy of each song that's made. Because when you do a playlist, you're actually downloading the song temporarily, but you're downloading it. So the major record companies, they make sure that the songwriters get paid fairly because they provide all this copyright information. But the big controversy is independent uh, producers and songwriters who are claiming in a class action suit now that Spotify is not adequately monitoring this mechanical royalty. So you have various rounds of litigation, and 
The last round is by an independent uh, publishing company called Wixen that are currently suing Spotify for over a billion dollars. <laughs> anyway, we'll see how that turns out. But there is legislation pending uh, that the publishers like that would clarify what Spotify and other interactive services have to do in order to ensure adequate payment for mechanical royalties. And that is in the works. And so since you say that's an actual sale, then does that constitute the other royalty of the master recording as well? Now, does the artist get paid too since it's on a digital service and is that something that SoundExchange collects? So are there essentially three royalties being paid out? Well, yeah, there's one royalty stream for records. And on non-interactive services like Pandora and SiriusXM, SoundExchange has been collecting on behalf of the owner of the record. And that's been working out pretty well. Um, so long as the artist registers with Sound Exchange, if he's independent, he's got to register. If he doesn't register, he won't get his money. Um, the confusing part is the song or the, the publishing, uh, because on um, interactive services like Spotify or Apple Music, you've got two royalty streams. You've got the performance royalty, which is collected by ASCAP BMI. That's been working out pretty well. But then you have this mechanical and the claim is by the independents, independent songwriters that Spotify has not been keeping track of what's due to them and that they've been negligent. And there was a class action. It was settled for tens of millions of dollars. But um, now, as I said, Wixen is starting this new lawsuit for a billion and a half. Um, the uh, legislation that is intended to clarify the situation so there won't be any more class action. It's called the Music Modernization Act of 2017. It's pending in the Congress. The publishers like it. They think that it will solve the problem. However, it's been noted recently in the trades, there's one clause in this act, which is very bad, which says, according to what I've read, you can't start a lawsuit. Now, I'm not sure... It, then they would actually block Wixen from pursuing their claim because the provision goes into effect prior to Wixen starting the litigation. So Wixen is complaining that this act is not as good as it should be. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. Okay. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> I actually um, have an interview with Wixen coming up. I'm sorry, I didn't catch I said I actually have a, I have an interview with uh Randall Wixon coming up, so maybe I'll inquire about that. You guys share the same publisher as well. I'm sure he would love to talk about it. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay, so I want to go over and talk about licensing for a second. Um, so based on the contracts that you've seen, what are some of the highest earnings that you've seen for music being licensed in film, television, and commercials? Can you give us an example well, for an independent artist and then what some major label artists get? Okay, uh, on that beer commercial, uh, we got around 20000 and he was unknown, but it was a national television commercial. Um, if you're talking about a big hit, as I said, Born to be Wild, that $375,000 was not out of the 
norm for that song. So it uh, well, it depends on whether the, the advertiser wants to use a big song or not. You're talking about movies. The major distinction there is between low-budget movies, where I license music for like, I don't know, $3,000 for a low-budget mu- movie, uh, and it can be a hit, uh, or you know, a pop classic, but it's a low-budget movie, so we pay less. Where a big-budget movie could be over 100000 So that's the big distinction in terms of uh, the movie business, low-budget versus studio. Studio movies are going to pay a lot more. For uh, shows are on cable, you're talking about two or three thousand dollars for somebody who's a professional but doesn't have a name to twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars if it's like a Bruno Mars song. So, gives you an idea of what we're talking about. Uh, Mad Men paid a record amount of money. Uh, for a Beatles song, uh, but like 250000 but that's very unusual. Yeah, well, it's the Beatles, so. Right. <laughs> okay, so uh, my next question is, if an artist is running every part of their career, how important is it that they set up a legal entity for each division of their music career? For example, if they're their own publisher, they're their own label, they're the artist and the songwriter. Should they have a, a entity for each one of those, and should they have a separate bank account for each one of those different roles that they're playing? Yeah, well, if they're serious business people, they should. And it has to do with liability. So if the record company screws up and there's a litigation and there's only one corporate entity, or no corporate entity, which is even worse, um, then... All the lines of income for that company or that person would be subject to a lawsuit. So if I'm making, you know, a million dollars from my publishing and a million dollars from record sales and I get sued, then the plaintiff could go after both the publishing income and the record income, even if um, the litigation concerned only the record income. So if you have separate corporate entities, you're protected. But the most important thing is if your record company or publishing company or production company is to incorporate, because unless you incorporate, then your personal assets are subject to a lawsuit. So you may only have a few thousand bucks in your corporate bank account, and you may have a million dollars in homes and you know cars and or bank account. And if you're not incorporated, then all of that is subject to the to the litigation, even though it has nothing to do with your personal life. Um, so you should think about incorporating. And um, you know, I do that for people all the time. People incorporate uh, as a, a company, or you can also form a LLC. And one of the dreadful things in uh, my world is that. It's really cheap to register as an LLC in every other state but New York. In New York, because of lobbying on the part of legal newspapers, uh, you have this owner's fee where you have to pay for advertising of your LLC, which is kind of meaningless. Nobody looks at these ads anyway, but it's a real scam, and they've been trying to change it for years. But if you try to register an LLC in New York, it costs you about $2,500 to $3,000. So that's very unfortunate. Um, and sometimes people will organize an LLC 
and use an address of their aunt in Delaware or their cousin in Chicago. But that doesn't work because if your main office is in New York, you have to you have to advertise the LLC in New York. So the alternative to that is to register as a company and then um, file for a sub S. If you just register as a company, you have to pay corporate tax and then pay on money that you pay yourself from the company. But if you file for a sub S with the IRS, then you don't have to pay the tax twice. Um, it's more complicated to file your tax return than an LLC, but um, it's the um, right alternative for a lot of people who have New York offices. Is there a and, general uh, the registration <laughs> that someone can sign to that cover all, covers the whole 50 states? Like, is that possible, or do you have to register in each one? No, you just need to register in one. And with the sub S, the only restriction is you can't have more than 100 shareholders, which is mostly meaningless for most people that I work with. That's the only restriction. Now, where you're also getting at is trademark, where you protect the name, and only a federal trademark registration will protect your name in all 50 states. So that's also something to think about. If you've got a name and you want to use it for your company or on T-shirts, you should think about filing a federal trademark registration. Again, you don't have to file in every state. You just need to file once with the federal trademark office. Okay. And so if someone does take all of these steps and they want to do everything correctly and make sure everybody's getting paid who's involved with the music, is there a system out there that makes it easier to divide the money that comes in from digital distributors or is it best to get an accountant? Because say you um, sell a song on iTunes and if you know the exact numbers, you can tell us, but say you sell a song on iTunes, I don't know, maybe they take 30% and uh, say you get 70 cents back. And then how does that get divided up between all of the songwriters on a song and then the artist royalty rate and then if you're acting as a label, how much should you set aside for your label rate? Like, are there systems out there digitally that can handle this? Because how do you split like a half a penny or something or the 9.1 between five different writers? Well, the first thing is uh, to get on iTunes or Spotify, if you're independent, you usually need an aggregator like TuneCore CD Baby. Mm -hmm. And they're supposed to keep track of the money. Uh, and then you tell them, who each you know royalty participant is now i don't have much experience dealing directly with city baby tune court these days but i think that you can give them the information and hopefully they can do the hard work of dividing up the royalties for you mm -hmm. because otherwise you'd have to do it yourself and barry i frankly just don't know how each system works but i know that uh, they ask for the information and uh, you know some people do it more accurately than others. Because mm -hmm. yeah, I'm wondering, like, what if some of the other writers on the song, they're not registered with the PRO? Would they just send it to your account? No, you got to be registered with the PRO. You're not going to get paid. Okay. Because the money gets paid directly from the service to ASCAP, BMI, and CSEC. So is it just going to sit for the other artists who aren't registered? Like, if I put a song out and I am registered, through my digital distributor, not through my PRO. But when the money comes back from an iTunes sale, that mechanical royalty, how is that going to be um, received by the other parties? 
Well, in public performance royalties, you should be very careful to register. And if somebody else is registering for you on your behalf with ASCAP and BMI to make sure that you get it right. So ASCAP and BMI and CSAC will ask for the percentages, and they will divide it up neatly according to what the group says the proper percentages are. And that system works very well, so long as the writer is, you know, professional enough and careful enough to make sure that his percentage is properly reflected in ASCAP. So if you've got one guy, a manager, say, for a group, you make sure that that manager input the information ASCAP BMI accurately, and ASCAP BMI and CSAC will check for you. Um, you know, so every situation is different, but um, public performance royalties are pretty easy because ASCAP BMI and CSAC do a good job of that. Uh, if a record label is dealing with uh, Spotify, for instance, an indie label, um, then each songwriter uh, should make sure that the record label is giving the correct information to Spotify and to uh, any other service. And it's hard to do, but, um, you know, it's doable. Uh, you just have to be conscious of what the record label is doing and make sure that the paperwork is in order. So if you're one of the songwriters on the song, that that's duly uh, uh, written down and uh, signed by all the interested parties. Because if it isn't, then you're more likely not to get the money. Right, because essentially the, uh, the person who's uploading the song becomes the record label by default, correct? Like for an independent artist? It's like I'm. It's my song, even though I have these features on there and these producers. I'm the one that's going to put it out through CD Baby or TuneCore. So when I do sell a song on iTunes, I'm responsible for making sure everyone gets paid out of those mechanical royalties. I'm not talking about the PRO side. Yeah, I had a EDM label that signed artists uh, and uh, songwriters, and they were very scrupulous. They did the accounting. Mm -hmm. um, so the money, 100% of the money would go to the CDM label, and they they had an accountant, and they issued royalty statements properly. But, you know, not a, 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 all record companies are equally scrupulous. Okay. Um, to move back to copyrights for a second so everyone can be clear about what it is and when it's created, can you just touch on that a little bit? and explain to the audience when and how a copyright is created, because sometimes people think you actually have to go and register with copyright.gov. But I, I've heard that it's when it's in some type of tangible form, recording or written down on paper, that's when it begins. Yeah, you're right. Um, copyright comes into existence as soon as the work is created. And the work can be a play, a movie, a novel, or a piece of music. And there are two kinds of music works. There's the song and then the recording. So you can write down the song without ever recording it, and a copyright comes into existence for the song. Once you record it, a copyright comes into existence for both the song and the recording. And you don't have to register it with the Copyright Office. It uh, comes into existence as soon as the work is created. However, and this is a big however, you should register the copyright in the song and the master. And the reason is that unless you register it, number one, you can't sue anybody unless you register it. 
Uh, you have to register it in order to start a lawsuit. So, number two, more importantly than that, there's certain benefits uh, for registration that don't come into existence when the work uh, is created. And those two benefits are statutory damages and attorney's fees. So, unless the work is registered with the Copyright Office, you can't get a lawyer to take the case and say, hey, you can make money and get attorney's fees, and that's the way you can benefit from this. So no attorney's fees and no statutory damages. Statutory damages are basically punitive damages up to $150,000, and you can't get that unless the work is registered. And the most important point is you have to register before the infringement because if you register after the infringement, you can't get the statutory damages and attorney's fees. So the best time to register a song in the master is before you show it to anybody, <laughs> before you shop it. You copyright it, you register it as an unpublished work. And that, and that means that you're protected, and in any case somebody takes it, makes it a hit, you can sue them for statutory damages. Now, if you don't have that and you sued them for regular damages, you'd have to show that you've been hurt. And even if, like, uh, Snoop Dogg makes millions of dollars from your from your from your song it doesn't necessarily mean that you've been damaged so unless you have the statutory damages and registration in place uh you may be out of luck okay well thank you for making that clear okay so my final question is what are some common things that people think that you may not have to have a contractual agreement for but they absolutely should like if for example going to a recording studio and paying them just for the time but not knowing that they may still have some ownership within the masters or paying someone for a photo shoot and not knowing that they still have rights within those um, photos. Hmm. And the photo situation hasn't come up that often. I do have a chapter in the book about video contracts. So if you hire a video producer, you should uh, make it clear if you're the artist um, or the manager that it's worth a hire so that the production company for the video doesn't own any rights in the video. Uh, and that's a very simple contract, and I put it in the book. Uh, for photo shoots, you know, it may not be worth the time and effort to hire a lawyer for a photo shoot because, you know, generally he gives you the photos, he uses them the way you want to. Uh, I haven't seen much litigation or disputes in that world. Of course, the Civil War for Hire agreement uh, would do the trick as well. And you could modify that video agreement for a photo shoot. Uh, the other issue is, uh, in terms of getting into writing, is the split sheet. Um, where you have a group of writers, or more than one writer, that should be reduced to paper. Again, I have a split sheet in the book. Uh, when you're hiring a producer, uh, if you're the artist, you want it to be worth a hire. If you're the producer, you want a royalty, plus you want songwriting credit. So those are, but generally speaking, other than those situations, in many cases, it's in the interest of the creator not to have a contract. So if you don't have a contract, you're not, you know, uh, transferring rights in your copyright. Because to transfer rights in your copyright, uh, say between ours and record company, it's got to be in writing. Otherwise, the um, talent retains the copyright. Uh, if you're working with a manager, it's in your interest as the artist not to have a contract 
because then you can fire the manager anytime. Whereas the management agreement is going to say, okay, I'm your management manager for this period of time, and I can commission anything that comes in, whether I helped you get the money or not. So in that situation, you're better off not having a contract. So it's a case-by-case thing. Okay, those are some and, good tips. So did you mean it? That was the last question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that, that was good. I wanted to actually give you the floor to mention anything that I, maybe I didn't ask or some things that you think are very important, or is there anything that you want to leave us with? Yeah, I'm going to uh, start a promotion with my publisher for the 11 Contracts book. And the promotion will be free access to a website where you can read the book uh, for free uh, for a two-week period, 15 days actually, starting uh, next Monday. And if people email me, I can give them the code for the access to the book. And you get access to both of my books and uh, a bunch of other stuff as well, other books and uh, tutorials on producing uh, records and creating songs. So my email address is steve, S-T-E-V-E, at stevegordon, G-O-R-D-O-N, law.com. Okay. You have any panels or workshops coming out here in Los Angeles? If you're out here, I'll be sure to attend. Yeah, I'd love to say that I do, but not at the moment. I'd love to visit L.A., but uh, no no immediate plans, unfortunately. Okay. Well, let the people know where they can find you at if you're on social media, your website. Just give that information out real quick. Sure. It's stevegordonlaw.com. And the links to Instagram and uh, YouTube um, are, and Facebook are there, and you just click on them. And, uh, yeah, and um, also my email address is there uh, for if you want the free code to access the books for free, steve at stevegordonlaw.com. Perfect. Well, thank you, Steve. We appreciate you and every bit of knowledge that you shared with us today was very informative. I'm pretty sure everyone that's listening is going to learn a lot. So thank you again. It was a pleasure speaking to you, Barry. I enjoyed it. All right. Talk to you soon. (laughs) 